Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, November 22nd, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, we talk about feathers, minimal CSS reset and boilerplate gem created by our very own Kelly Shaver. Please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. That was a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) That was a little weird. Right. I almost didn't. I almost didn't get it released before we recorded. Uh, well, that's okay because you'd still have like twenty four hours or so, yeah. depending yeah. on the week. <laughs> yeah, but then the pressure would really be on. <laughs> yes, yeah, that actually. I don't know. I I hate to jump way ahead, but <laughs> I did that to myself last week, which was I said I would have a blog post up by the time the podcast was listened to, and that did not happen. But it's up now, but we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking last week you said it would be up by Thursday-ish, and it wasn't. So. Yeah, it was... I could have finished it by then, but the idea was to have everybody publish them at once, and not everybody was done, so... Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. Lay, lay blame on, on other people. Yeah, I'm just... I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but... <laughs> Josh, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> No, he's traveling in Shanghai right now. So yes, he is. He was in Shanghai with the flu, actually. So yes, hopefully not the bird flu. No, I hope not. We uh, did you read that? Did you read that uh, Cyberstorm book that you sent me? Yes, I did. I did. Yes, yes. I read it before I sent it to you. Yes, it's a dear listener. If you're into sort of cyber apocalypse with a happy ending, <laughs> <laughs> a dark middle. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers there. Uh, but the uh, bird flu features largely in the plot. Yes. Um, geez, so uh, we were going to record a little earlier, but we just had a dishwasher installed. And let me tell you, it's like Christmas came early. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way about the roof. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like a new dishwasher, too. Ours is really loud, but... Yeah, between a roof and a dishwasher. Gotta go. Yeah, gotta go I mean, I mean, you know, Kira's Kira's glad that it's no longer raining in her bedroom. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but then she doesn't have to shower before school. Just like up and out. <laughs> Very efficient. Yeah. All right, so let's get into some housekeeping slash news type stuff. Um, okay. Is next week Thanksgiving? Yes, it is. Holy mackerel. I think we could actually pull off if we if we re- are able to record early in the week. There's no reason why I wouldn't be able to publish it on Friday for your Black Friday listening pleasure, dear listener. So I, I don't think we'll necessarily don't don't sue us if it doesn't show up on Friday. But yeah, I don't I don't think I have anything standing in the way of, of recording early next week. So yeah, no, nothing more than usual anyway. Yeah, me, me neither. Uh, and this week we got off of our brand new early recording schedule because I was in San Francisco uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And uh, recording the uh, Inside the Brackets HTML5 panel show for Intel. And uh, man, what a week. I mean, what an episode. It's not really an episode because we filmed three episodes, but it was quite a day. Let's put it like that. Had a bunch of great guests, including Brian LaRue, Luke W., Luke Rabluski, um, Kieran Prush... I'm going to get his name wrong. Kieran P. from uh, LinkedIn, the head of mobile at LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, and 
Divya Mannion and Ben Odom from Intel. It was like it was an all star cast. Wow. Yeah. Wow, it was that's a it's a, a big list. Yeah, it was really cool. <clears throat> and we had Kieran, Luke, and Brian on one episode and the four of us couldn't shut up, so we actually accidentally <laughs> recorded two episodes, I think. <laughs> Nice. I, don't, I don't think they'll be able to edit it down to anything sensible. So we'll have to Gonna split have to it make it a two-parter. Yeah, it'll be a cliffhanger. <laughs> Will the web survive? Will native dominate? <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next month for Inside the Brackets. So keep your eyes peeled. I'll put it in the show notes, and I uh, will tweet about it as well if you're interested in um, uh, Luke and I debating the future of the web as a document versus an app platform. Yeah, how we they, think they actually have an official site up for Inside the Brackets now and everything, don't they? Yep. Yeah, I actually bought that domain name after, in a couple of weeks went by, and I was like, I wonder if they bought the domain name yet, and they hadn't, so... <laughs> so you did? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but they did finally get a, a good site up that sort of chronicles everything and gives you a good index and let you jump into wherever you want to go. Nice. Yep. Link to it in the show notes. Yes. And as we alluded to at the beginning of the show, the uh, TechCrunch blog posts are up now, uh, with the exception of Josh's, who's still in traveling. Shanghai. Yes, in Shanghai. And people seem to dig them. It's cool to, it's even cool for me, having been on the project, to look at like Brad's take on it and Dan's take on it, because they have such a different perspective on. You know, they had a different workflow, you know, like Dan's workload was way heavier at the beginning yeah. and, and mine was way heavier at the end. Brad was kind of in the middle and they just, you know, they just obviously had very different concerns. So to hear them talk about it is super interesting to me so I can understand why other people are digging it. Yeah. Yeah. That's not neat to see their, <coughs> their perspectives on it. So. Yep. And for my part, I mostly just talked about technical JavaScript stuff since the other guys talked about yeah. process and yeah, they're, they're a lot more processed than I'm, I'm getting ready to start on a project with Josh and I'm going to kind of stepping into the role you were, you were doing and doing the JavaScript development. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding all of their, all of the discussion over process and everything is just, it's really interesting to me. Yeah. We're talking about doing a, uh, doing like a all-star cast type of, workshop sort of thing to um to help people with this process because there's not a lot of not really anyone that i know maybe ethan marcotte is doing it I don't, I don't know i haven't seen a lot of people out there who have experience running large responsive design projects mm -hmm. uh, and and you know i've kind of like learned the hard way how different it is and how to handle it. It's mostly about client expectations and maintaining a level of trust and, and how do you basically, how do you run a, a web design project with no initial sign off on a design? It's, it's tricky. Yeah. So, um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. If you uh, work for a large company and you're interested in that kind of thing, you could probably have us come to you. There you go. And finally in the news, I am working on a new book. Hooray! Yay! Are you insane? <laughs> I am insane, but I but I am keeping to my promise to myself of not writing another code book. Okay. I uh, I there's this very special like I I wrote th I've written three books that 
are code books that, you know, very, very specific. Mm -hmm. They're tied to a version of software. I have GitHub repos that are related to them. When you update the edition of the book, you have to update the repo or vice versa. When you update the repo, you should update the book, but how? I'm just not doing that again. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, without without a publisher or anything, I actually had this idea that I wanted to do one a while back, and I started on something. It's a a Sinatra one. Hmm. And it, I got I got a fair ways into it, but then I'm just this is this is too much headache. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the best way to communicate the information. No, it's not. Screencasts are way easier, and they're and they have and they they convey much more information, even more than what you just what you're talking about. Like when you do a screencast, for example, screencasts aren't perfect because when you have to update one, you got to redo the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But unless I guess you're a really good video editor, but um, the, you know, it, it it shows how you work. It shows how you use your text editor. It shows how you navigate between files. It shows all these things that aren't really the subject of what you're talking about, but are very, very instructive to, especially to beginners. Yeah. So I just really, I mean, obviously I love O'Reilly. They do a great job and they're, they are just awesome. But I, I just can't, I cannot see myself doing another book that has like version control on it. It's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, like you said, one, one tiny change anywhere and it has to trickle through everything. Yeah. And they, you know, they're, I think they're better about print on demand and all that stuff. So you can actually do that sort of thing, but just, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't need to go into it. It's really hard. And, and I I just don't want to do it again. So I'm writing one now that is a tech book, but it's about, um, raising kids around, you know, what raising kids in a world full of connected devices and like what different people do, what works for them, what doesn't work for them, things that, you know, everything from how to save money at stuff to how, you know, how to, help your kids with site, you know, all these different things, all the possible things that you could think of. I'm researching right now to kind of see if I can come up with a compelling narrative Yeah. for a more of a, a non code technical book. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think we, we probably have some similar views about kids and technology and I'm, I'm interested in, in seeing how this, how this unfolds. Yeah, me too. I, it's it's weird because the previous books I wrote, I knew exactly what I wanted to write before I wrote the book, which is how I had the idea for the book. Right. <laughs> this one I is more of a case of I wish there was a book about this. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need yeah. I didn't I didn't personally need the books I wrote before. This one I kind of would I kind of wish I had. So it's like so it's more of a research project. And I put up a uh, Google Doc questionnaire for people to fill out. I've had about a hundred people complete it so far. Uh, and Kelly did as well. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I was number one. Yes. And there were some, it's interesting, you know, it's only a hundred people so far and, and it's, it's a very bad sample group. It's like people that follow me on Twitter who are like incredibly technical when they're like listing, you know, one of the questions is what connected devices do you have in the house? And like people are listing stuff like Raspberry Pi <laughs> or yeah. Arduinos. And, you know, so those, that group is super technical. And then even the people uh, who I'm friends with on Facebook, which is much more of a family crowd and not a work crowd, mm-hmm. even them are, you know, all basically the same socioeconomic, you know, y- white US yeah. 
upper middle class. You know, it's like, so it's very, it's very homogenous, but even though, you know, it's a, it's not necessarily, it's not homogenous as much as, um, a, a, a wicked skewed sample. Um, but the, even still, it's really interesting. The, there's a massive range in the amount of money that people spend per month on mm -hmm. this sort of stuff. Like some people, some people, it's like almost nothing. Do they, do they spend like they've got a couple of dumb phones and everything else is Wi-Fi? Yeah. Uh, and then you get other people who are who are you know I feel like I'm an outlier because I do this for work, so I have a whole bunch of cell phones and I have a lot of plans and everything. Yeah. But there are plenty yeah. of people on there that spend five hundred bucks a month on oh, on how? phones. Yeah, it's it's because they have. Um, there's actually an alarming number of people who have six kids or more, and you know, <laughs> it's alarming. You put five iPhones with unlimited data or yeah. unlimited texting, and you're you've at five hundred bucks. Yeah, and yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, it's so it's so it's really interesting. I, I'm not sure. I well, I'm not sure exactly what the final chapter lineup will look like. Not even close yet. I just I have some ideas, and I'm um, you know, if people listening can go fill out the questionnaire, then uh, the more f input I get, the better because I can kind of create something that it that is useful for most people and maybe reveals some interesting insights and sort of tips and tricks and uh, we can all kind of learn from each other. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like, it sounds like a fun project to do. Yeah. It's, I don't feel like I learned, I certainly learned things when I wrote my previous books, but they were more about writing a book than they were about the topic. <laughs> this is yeah. totally like I'm just educating myself and then I'm going to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's more like a more like yeah. a term paper. <laughs> so I feel a little bit bad. I feel like I should be some kind of like education expert or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like some kind of child development, but I figured I was like, "Oh man, I don't know if I should really write a book like this." And then I was like, "You know, Jenny McCarthy's out there talking about vaccination, so I I can do this." <laughs> yeah. If Jenny yeah, McCarthy's giving and medical she has no advice, she has no business doing that either. Yeah, I mean that's exactly. Like, if you're going to give medical advice, at least give correct medical advice. <laughs> yeah, at least be a doctor or something. I don't know. So whatever your mileage may vary, uh, but hopefully that'll be good. And hopefully, uh, dear listener, you will fill out the questionnaire because I would love to know how you handle it in your household. Yes. And I, I, I had filled it out and then forgot about it, but I have a, a I can pass it around to my circle of friends as well. Hmm. Cool. Get more nerds on the, on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a lot of, a lot of my friends who are parents don't, don't really fall into the nerd category. So. Oh, good. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm, I'm really most interested in that. It's really easy for me to reach the Twitter crowd, which is just really super technical. And I wonder if that's a good thing. I, maybe, maybe the book is like tech nerds advise people who are, you know, technophobes. Not tech nerds. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, but I feel like seeing, seeing where the other half is coming from, kind of gives you insight into <laughs> the the things that would be the most beneficial to advise on. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, it's weird because I'm starting without a conclusion in mind. I, I really yeah. don't have a preconceived. I mean, I know how I'm going to raise my kids, but I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone. So it'll be interesting right. to see what you're everybody not, You're not saying this is the best way to do it. Right. This is what people are doing. So, 
cool. Shall we jump into the featured content? Sure. You wrote a gem, didn't you? Yes. My first (laughs) Ruby gem. It's your first one. It's my first one. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you've dug around in others in the past and fixed bugs or at least tracked down bugs, I know, but... Wow, I didn't realize this this was your first gem. Yeah, this is the first one I've authored. And the first Ruby gem I've written, and it's more CSS than Ruby, but nonetheless. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious. I suppose we'll get to the actual exercise of writing a gem. I'm curious what that entails, but why don't you tell everybody first what the gem does? Yeah, it's um, it's called feathers, and the idea is that it's just little, little lightweight bits of decoration you can add to your to your app to make it pretty. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and <laughs> pretty much, it's a it's a very sort of minimal CSS reset, and there's some boilerplate to give you some basic things like typography and and some you know, tap highlight scroll f- settings and, and things like that. And and that's that's all in the base file. It does some some normalization, you know, the, the typical stuff that you would expect from a uh, a very sort of minimal you know re- reset to do. Hmm. And and then there are there are other files that you can just kind of layer on top of that that add additional uh, additional CSS for commonly used widgets like buttons and navigation bars and menus and, and that sort of thing hmm. forms. Cool. I love that because I've had in a couple of uh, cases recently, I have had CSS completely destroy the performance of my site. You know, some project that I'm working on, you know, I I immediately think, oh, wow, the JavaScript is really bogging down. And it ends up being that it's not the JavaScript at all. It's It's, CSS. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm dealing with that on a project too. Yeah. It's like, it it took me by surprise, but when you think about it, it makes sense because the browser you can you can make the browser work really hard to calculate the color of a given pixel. Mm-hmm. Uh, never mind position. So you know, I think it's really important to be as lean in your CSS as I like to be in my JavaScript. Yeah, I think so. And this, what I like about this is, I like the modularity of it. Like, okay, if you don't want to use these buttons, don't include the buttons. If you don't, want, if you want to style your forms differently, don't include forms. Mm. And that's, you don't have ta- you don't have tables. Don't include tables. <laughs> right, and that's that stuff is the includes is not, has nothing to do with the Ruby part. That's all what you're right. doing in the SAS file. Just um, CSS imports, yeah. Right. Yeah, that is really that's that's pretty cool. Um, is that? I mean, you can do CSS imports without SAS, right? Like, yeah. I never I never do that. Come to think of it, but I realize that you can do it. I never think about it like that. I wonder what that does in terms of uh, that must create extra network requests. It's not something that's compiled. So if you were doing it without yeah. SAS. Yeah, if you're doing it without it, it does. It creates extra network requests. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to I hit so speaking of Luke W, we had a, he's he's a um he's very much a web guy, uh, of the design ilk. And um he was, we were somehow got talking about, uh, how he structures his CSS Mm -hmm. and he, because I'm getting sort of, I've been doing it a particular way for a long time. And I've been sort of playing with the way that I've set it up and I was really not happy with the new way I tried. So like, like for example, taking all of my, uh, all of my colors and putting them at the top of the document. 
-hmm. you know, so like do like typography in a section and then do colors in a section and then do layout in a section and then do, and then I would generally do like print styles at the end, media queries at the end. And, uh, so that, that's what I've been experimenting with and it works great when I'm doing a demo for people because it splits out a lot of stuff that we're not really focusing on uh, away from the stuff that we are, more complicated stuff that we are focusing on. Mm -hmm. But in my regular work, I usually do like, I usually do, for, for a given selector, I will put all the styles that apply to that selector inside of that block regardless. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I do. Yeah, but then I still, I still, you end up with this weird organizational issue of like, you can't just put stuff anywhere you want in a CSS document because of the cascade. Right. And you know me, I want to alphabetize everything. And you can't. So then it's like, well, how do I organize it? And so one of the things I do is I tend to put all the media queries down at the bottom. That's what I'm getting at. And <clears throat> he used to do that. And he has switched over to um, putting, the media, putting all of the rules around a given co component or widget or like functional area. He puts it all in one spot. See, I have recently done the same thing myself. And are you liking it? I am. Yeah, I, th I, I, I have never tried it, but I can tell just by thinking about it that that is what I should be doing. Because you like look at it on the screen and you're like, oh, the sidebar, you know, the, the call to action in the sidebar is wonky. Yeah. You, you just want to go to one little chunk. You, you know, you want to go to 100 lines of CSS and not have to jump around the file. Right. You don't have to find it in three places. Right. And that's one of the things that I've started shooting myself in the foot with the separating the colors into the, the top because I'll go in and I'll be like, Oh, I thought I set a color on this thing, but I guess I didn't. No wonder it's wrong. And then I'll put a color in there. So now I'm sprinkling colors all over the place. It's just like a lack of discipline, but you have no way of knowing that there are like dependencies up the tree without doing a search or something. Yeah. So interested to do that, but he is a big SAS guy, which is here. Mm -hmm. Here comes my point, my rambling, <laughs> rambling train. Uh, he splits out his colors using SAS, which achieves mm -hmm. the goal that I'm shooting for because I feel like colors are, you want to like tweak them a lot, but you still want them to be consistent throughout. Yes. So how do you sort of put them in a global spot? Well, SAS makes it really easy with variables, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. So, I'm slowly weakening. My resolve against CSS preprocessors is slowly breaking down. <laughs> yeah, and actually, you can um, with feathers. You can configure, confi you know, have the um, all of all of the default colors. You can configure with a um, initializer inside your Ruby application. I saw that. That is interesting because you're sort of bridging the. You're allowing someone to just pull in this boilerplate code and then never touch it just modify your ruby right that's pretty cool yeah you can just just pull in the boilerplate and then if all you want to do is is you know, modify colors you can just go create an initializer file and, and set your colors in there and, and that's that how does that work though like i don't understand how like I, it doesn't make sense to me how that works is it like rewriting the the one of the cs the scss files uh yeah what it does um when you when you run the it's all, it's all managed through the Rails asset pipeline. So when the gem, oh. so when when the app processes the uh, the CSS, it will look for those settings in in the Ruby config files, 
and apply the colors in the config files uh, to the the CSS SAS files in um, in feathers. I've actually got the SAS file. Um, I've actually got the the feathers um, SAS files are also parsed uh, through ERB first before they're before everything's compiled. So Wait, you so can is, plug in the yeah. Is that <laughs> Sorry, something? Did I lose you? No, no, it, it, no. It makes that does make sense. But I'm curious. Do you does the asset pipeline have some kind of like like do you talk to the asset pipeline as if it has kind of like a, a programming interface or is there just a sensible default that it looks for certain kinds of files and does does the thing you expect it to do uh yeah that was actually one of the interesting things i ran into with uh, when writing the gem um the the asset pipeline by default looks in a few different places for um assets to compile um, it'll it'll look in in your app directory and in your public directory and also in the vendor directory. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to do if you want to do them in a gem like I did, for instance, you have to um, have to register a Rails engine, and then that gets included. Yeah, that's exactly that. So that's the first thing that I said. It's like you have to kind of like, hey, asset pipeline, I need you to do something over here, type of thing. Right, right. That's pretty cool. Wow. Huh. So what was the, um, what was like, what's involved with writing a gem? That's kind of a good segue into that. Like, like for people who don't know, tell people what a gem is. Yeah. I'm thinking of thinking of writing a a blog post about it or something. Mm. Um, a gem is basically, it's just a package of, uh, files that get included in your application. It's just, um, you know, I mean, it's it's nothing it's nothing magical, really. The gem is basically just to to get the files onto your system, and and then then they get included in your application from there. Is it like a zip, and, like an archive or something? Um, or? Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what compression format they use, but I'm sure it's you know it's it's basically uh, just a, a compression an archive format, and then you know when you install the gem. Wherever you install it to, it's not like you're not installing some binary file or anything. It's the 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 contents. The gem gets downloaded and the contents get extracted. Yeah, so, so. it's like PHP includes, but it's just really organized. Yeah. So like if you had, um, if so, you basically just wrote a bunch of files in a directory. Mm-hmm. It's basically a little Ruby application, and then and then what do you run like some gem com- compile command line thing on it? Yeah, um, Ruby gems. Actually, has the the tools in you know, in the in the Ruby Gems application to to do all that. Uh, there's a, a gem spec file that you have that has various information about the gem, version number, author, license information, files to include that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and then you just there's a there's a build command where you can build the gem. Gotcha. And then you can just push it to. In my case, I put it got the the source on GitHub and then pushed the the compiled gem file to RubyGems.org. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really, we were sort of chatting about this last night, the difference between uh, gems in Ruby and Rails and uh, like includes and pair and PHP and like... Composer. Yeah, like how it sort of seems like incredibly silly to have dependency, a, a dedicated dependency manager in PHP because you don't need one. It doesn't. Yeah, I think you don't include files the same way you do in something like Ruby. Like, like with Ruby, you can have a Ruby gem that's an entire application. 
that you're just basically embedding in another application. And you don't really do that with PHP. Well, you do, but you don't mm-hmm. you know, like like PHP Mailer, for example. It's like or or the FileMaker API for PHP. It's like hundreds of files, but you just include one. So you have like a directory, right. and you just include one file, and it's got all this other stuff that you never touch. And it's it's a little like the but see that doesn't feel like I don't know. It's it's not a big deal, but it's it's not. Uh, slick you just download the files and put them in your web directory yeah. <laughs> it's not magic um but the the sort of thing we were going back and forth about that was that in with php i don't know what it is i think it's really just developer personality or the way the community works you i've never had a case in 10 years where i had to stay on an older version of oh like a library you know like p like php mailer is one i used a lot because you never want to yeah. write something like that by hand, you know, right. like SMTP client. Yeah, I think the the pair SMTP module is the only one, only pair module I ever actually used with any consistency. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like with PHP, you just don't really, you don't really have the call for it because there's not, you don't have to manage multiple, like I would never have been in a situation where, I had one application that was written in PHP 5 and I had another application that was written in PHP 4 and I had to like change my development environment back and forth on my dev machine depending on which one I was working on because it's like everything would work in 5. Yeah, everything from 4 would work in 5. There was no like the backwards compatibility was really good. And in in Rails it's it's probably just for a top-down thing from DHH. It's just like backward, you know, be on the latest and greatest or too bad. I'm clean, I'm cleaning up my code. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ruby Ruby itself is a, is a bit like that as well. But oh yeah, they'll just yank stuff out and be like too tough. Mm, occasionally, I mean, I've, I've seen it happen. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and with PHP, I mean, it happens with PHP too, but it happens much more slowly, and you'll get deprecation warnings and, and things like that for a version or two beforehand. Yeah, like and, an entire ver- like a year. Yeah. Like yeah. you're, and, and it's like basically you said, your fault. A lot of, <laughs> right. And like you said, a lot of a lot of gym authors don't do that. And um, I've seen I've seen a couple of Thoughtbot gyms where Thoughtbot has has done that. They've deprecated things. Mm-hmm. And then in, in a later version, they'll remove them. But you get you get some warning first there. But right, that's you're right. A lot of a lot of gem authors don't do that. So you you do end up a lot of times with Ruby gems. It becomes an issue of needing to manage versions in addition to just you know getting the files into your application. Right. Yeah. So then you know, with Rails, it does make sense to have it. Or is it really Ruby or is it Rails? It's Ruby. It, it's Ruby. Okay. So yeah. So. It makes sense to have a dependency manager there because you're constantly switching back and forth between what version of, I don't know, what's an example? Um, like what's uh, um, some kind of, or like a, a HTTP client. Yeah, like, like Active Record or, or something. Yeah, yeah. so you, you're like, you, you have one that works in Ruby 1.9 and you have another that works in Ruby 2 and the one from 1.9 breaks in Ruby 2 because the gem author used all the latest and greatest Ruby features in the gem, in the new version of the gem instead yeah. of... Yeah. I wonder if you could... I mean, the way that people deal with this... The, people deal with a similar problem in JavaScript with polyfills. Mm-hmm. And 
it takes a lot more code, but it makes your life a lot easier, <laughs> you know? So like the, the gem author could write all the fancy new stuff, uh, using latest and greatest syntax of Ruby 2.0 and then also to check for, but if we're not using Ruby 2.0, do this instead. Do this instead. But then they have yeah, I mean, you could. more than twice as much code Yeah. to maintain. So they say, nah, use the old gem. Yeah, you, you, you can't blame them. The, the Ruby community is pretty pretty quick to upgrade things. So, you know. Yeah, but clients aren't. That's the problem. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I think another, another thing, and it may be a small thing, but I, I'm just thinking about it. Um, in Ruby... And and even in Rails as well, you tend to do a lot more of your application sort of creation and management and configuration from the command line mm-hmm. than you do in, in probably PHP and probably a lot of PHP developers do. No, you never touch the command line in PHP. Yeah. So so just being able to manage all of your dependencies from the command line via Ruby Gems is it's it's very quick and convenient. Mm. Versus having to download a zip file and, and include a, you know, open up a file and edit and include file and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, we'll see, that's two different things though. It's interesting. I don't know if this, I don't know if this is actually interesting to the listener. <laughs> it's interesting to me <laughs> yeah, though. But, yeah. So the, when you're like PHP mailer, for example, that's not a PHP plugin. That's not something that Ruby is using. Right. That's something that's part of my application. And right. it would be in version control of my application and uh, so on and so on. It's like a, it's like an, it's code that I didn't write that's in my app, mm-hmm. but gems are used by Ruby. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? It's more like, well, no, I mean, I mean, gems, gems are the same thing. It's the same type of thing. So it's code that you didn't write that's in your app. Yeah. Yeah. But it's at, it, I feel like I, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's at a lower level. The deep, Not really. the deeper level. Not really. Well, but you don't store your gems in the app. Yeah, you do. And, no, you don't. Well, yeah, okay. You, well, you keep them in the vendor directory of your application. Well, you're the award-winning Rails developer, so I'm not going to argue. But <laughs> I thought that... Well, something's going on, though. That, okay. that doesn't make I, sense. I was, I, yeah, okay. I think I, I think I see where you're coming from, though. Um, the If you have your... <sighs> There are a few different ways that, that gems can be installed. They can be installed globally, which makes them available to 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 Ruby system wide. That's what I'm. That's okay. See, that's where that's because when you do RBENV or what's the other one that you prefer? Uh, that that is the one I prefer, but the oh. other one is RVM. RVM. Okay, right. So when you use those, it's not touching your application directory. It's moving stuff around in some like RBENV you know, dot RBENV folder yeah. in your home directory. Yeah. Which is where the problem comes from because you're sharing the gems across multiple projects if you don't keep them straight. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why for, for the most part, a lot of people don't do that. I mean, you have, you have the, the, the few gems that you do use globally installed that way, for instance, bundle, bundler and rake. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, for the most part, everything else, uh, the norm now is to have them installed locally within each application. That makes a lot uh, more in, sense. Inside the vendor directory for the application. Yeah, that makes more sense. But I do now I, I, that gives more meaning to when you said that you do more stuff at the command line with 
when, when you're doing Ruby and Rails because you, it would be a, it's kind of like setting your path variable. It'd be a pain in the ass yeah. to like constantly be picking the version of bundler. I oh, know that'd be, to. that'd be a huge pain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, pain. so yeah, you you install them locally in your vendor directory, and I guess another another advantage to to Ruby gems in that regard is um, gems can get pretty big. Mm-hmm. You can you can end up with a lot of code um, from from your various Ruby gems that you're using in your application. So, if you want to to store and distribute your code, um, distributing all of the gems that you're using with it is, uh, you know, it just gets it, you can you know it can get massive. Uh huh. You can, yeah, especially you can, like, you got, you'll run out of room on GitHub real quick. Yeah, I was just gonna say, especially <laughs> if you're using Git, because that really doubles, yeah. triples. It. Yeah. So, so you just specify the versions that you need in your gem file mm-hmm. for your application, and then when someone someone downloads your application, they just run Bundler, and it'll fetch and and fetch all the dependencies that you you specified, and, and plop them into your vendor directory, and, and that's that. So. Mm. I didn't. This all makes sense, but I didn't come up to a conscious level previously. It makes me less annoyed with the because the the fact that you have to switch environments around really bugs me um, because I'm like so set well, in my ways. <laughs> like PHP <laughs> just PHP just works. There's like nothing yeah. to configure. Everything's there. It's this gigantic sprawling monolithic mess. But but every it's like this giant workshop with tools laying everywhere. You know. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, it's not uh, it's not organized. No, you have to impose organization on it. But but that means that everything's always like hands reach away. There's no like messing around because like the efficiency for me creates like lots of confusion because I'm not used to it. Mm. Anyway, get off my lawn. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So back to feathers. Yes, feathers, which I published about an hour ago. I think it has. It already has thirteen downloads. Nice. So dig that. Are we broadcasting yeah. live? No. <laughs> maybe it's the NSA. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Tapping into our Skype call. <laughs> maybe. NSA digs feathers. <laughs> I like it. Big thumbs up. So speaking of speaking of that, um, yeah, but you know, really, I, I don't know that there's a lot more to say about it. There's there's a few things I there's things I still want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do like a couple of view helpers for some some things, and I want to. There's a couple of things that I did that are are uh, WebKit only that I want to go back in and fix for for other browsers. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, on the forums. Because this this started out a long time ago as just a little library I was used using for just quickly prototyping some uh, some things in um, in WebKit, some mobile app stuff in WebKit. Yep. And it kind of grew out of that, and, and I ended up I used ended up using it for for itemize. And and then I just I'll just I'll just make a gem out of it because I haven't I, I haven't actually made a Ruby gem yet, and it seems like it'd be a good experience to try and do. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's good to know because it, that's, it's not just some CSS that you wrote because you thought it would be a cool idea. It's actually been used on projects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I used a fair bit of it on Automize, and I've used bits and pieces of it on a lot of applications for a few months now. So hmm. So I thought SAS automatically filled in vendor prefix stuff. 
Uh, SAS itself does not. Compass does, Bourbon does. I have a CSS mix in, or I have a, a some some SAS mix ins that do the the vendor prefix prefixes in in feathers. Gotcha. So, and that's what you mean when you say you want to go in and add like more cross browser support, or yeah. Well, no, um, some of some of the things I'm actually doing in in terms of how I'm styling um, some of the form elements, like. Um, Oh, the appearance, CSS appearance property. Yes, big fan. For radio buttons and checkboxes mm-hmm. does not work in Firefox. Uh, and so I need to go in and come up with alternate ways to, to do that sort of thing. So I came up with a, a, a recent one that's sort of on topic that uh, I was really surprised and annoyed by. Mm-hmm. The um, inside of Kilo, I have all the buttons sort of look uh, the you know, big blue rectangular with mm-hmm. very slightly rounded corners. And, um, and those are, those are, I use the same, you know, and they're all a tags and f- I use fast active to highlight them. So they're really touch sensitive. Yeah. And, oh, that's another thing I want to, I want to add fast active to, to this. Oh, cool. That'd be interesting. So, um, yeah, so then all the form submit buttons, it's been bugging me that the form submit buttons were just like the default for whatever platform slash browser the user was on. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to change those to look like the A tag. So it was like, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, in WebKit, you have to have to add the appearance attribute to change the submit buttons. Exactly. So on mobile. Change it to none. You got to take, take off the border. And, mm-hmm. But otherwise, it wasn't really too much of a big deal, except for um, the CSS after pseudo element does not work on input elements. Interesting. I don't think I've ever tried it. I, I never have. And I was like, oh, why? what did I do wrong here? It's not showing up. Everything else is working perfectly. I updated fast active to... Um, I, I didn't update it on GitHub yet, but I will. Uh, but I updated fast active to... Um, not worry about what element it is that got tapped. Mm-hmm. So it, if that, yeah, I said that right. So right now it's like specifically looking for a tags to add the active class to, but uh, I'm going to change it so that other interactive elements, or maybe just every element will add the active class and you just deal with it in your CSS. Yeah. Uh, I think on, I, I think on a, I had, had used fast active recently on a project. I think I ended up modifying it for, um, uh, a tags and inputs. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I just did. So I, I think that's, I'll probably do that. Um, and maybe you, you could imagine a couple of other interactive elements, like, I don't know what image maps. <laughs> There's, I know there are some other things that, that would, you'd There's want There's an to, actual button tag. Yeah. Button. That was the other one I was thinking of. So yeah, I might add those in or just, just say like, Hey, whatever is receiving the action, just put add the class to it. It doesn't really matter because yeah, that seems like it wouldn't If you just did it like a catch all, it seems like it would be a little slower. I'm, yes. The thing I'm not sure about is, is, um, I can't remember. I th- probably binding to the body, listening for the touch on the body, which is almost always what I do. I think you are. Yeah. And what that means is that if, if you put images inside of an A tag, it'll add the active class to the image, which isn't what we want. So you, it, you do have to kind of like let it bubble up and and capture it at a particular type of target. Otherwise, the thing you want is never going to get the 
Not sure what it would do. Maybe it would add active to everything as it bubbled up the chain. That would be weird. That would be weird. Anyway, I'll figure it out. We'll probably just end up adding some conditionals to include buttons and inputs. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, people should go to, um, what is it? GitHub.com slash Kelly Shaver slash feathers. Yes, it is. And we'll put the and link in the show notes. on rubygems.org. Yeah, I'm surprised there were no other slash, gems called feathers. Yeah. Rubygems.org slash gems slash feathers. I know. Yeah, I, I went through a few names that were all taken before I settled on feathers. And I was just like, oh, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it is perfect. Love it. So yeah, any Ruby devs in the audience, please check out Feathers and let us know what you think. Yeah, feel free to feel free to laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the scary part about putting code online, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I I really I had my fingers in my ears when I went live with Fast Active. It's like <laughs> ten lines of code, and I was sure someone was going to jump all over me. And <laughs> people did. Yeah, people did, but there was but there's only. Like, why don't you just use? giant library with a bunch of unnecessary things why instead. Why don't you just use Bootstrap <laughs> or Hammer.js? I mean, they, yeah. you know, everybody had oh, fat, what was the one? FastClick. Everybody wanted me to use FastClick. I'm sure I'll get a lot of, why don't you just use Bootstrap instead? <laughs> like, well, uh, I can give you the point. <laughs> I can give you a megabyte of reasons yeah. not to use Bootstrap. So, uh, so yeah, check out Feathers. Uh, let us know what you think and try not to jump all over Kelly's case. <laughs> <laughs> Although, pull requests and feedback are, are, of course, welcome. Yes. That's the new constructive criticism, a pull request. Yes. <laughs> I like that. It is like the pull request is the ultimate constructive criticism. It is. It is. It's like, you, you messed us up, but I fixed it for you. <laughs> right. It's awesome when you think about it. It's, it's, and thank you for p fixing my typos. <laughs> First. <laughs> First, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. That's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaper. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye. I was going to make a Turkey Day reference. Yeah. I hope you're awake next week to join us for the Niche <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> See ya.